Welcome to Dairy Stream, brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations that fight for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. Dairy Stream focuses on issues affecting the dairy community and our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Austin. Well, today on Dairy Stream, we're going to continue our series of success in secession planning series. We opened up this three-part series about uh, how to get organized when you're talking about uh, secession plans. And today, we're going to look at the financial analysis of success in secession planning. And our guest today is certainly very qualified to talk about this. It's Eric Golix-Rude, who happens to be the Vice President of Tax and Accounting at uh, Compeer Financial. And also, uh, Carrie uh, Gribble is with us of Trifecta Farms. And I thank you both for being with us on today's Dairy Stream. We're going to kind of open up talking about things such as cash flow analysis, uh, debt analysis, and state planning, wills, things like that. And I want to start uh, with you, Carrie. If you can just give us kind of a brief overview of your experience with secession planning. Sure, I'm happy to. So I think for us, this has always been a part of our business model. My brother Nick and I started buying into the farm back in 2002. And at that point, our parents had loaned us 10 cows and then we repaid that as you know we sold the milk, obviously. And so for them, it was always important for us to have some skin in the game. And they always had rules where we had to go get an education, work for somebody else, and then return to the farm with something of value. The other thing that we've done is we've worked under a parallel business model. So our financials have always been separate. We're running two different C corporations and we have some LLCs and other things going on. But for us, it allowed us to shrink one side and grow the other side. And that provided some control as to the speed in which we were transitioning some of those assets. For us, as we started looking through this, we, we originally started purchasing land from mom and dad and then we certainly realized like this is very cost prohibitive. There's a lot of tax implications, there's capital gains, and we needed to have a better longer term strategy. So we began researching and attending some succession planning workshops. We met with a few different lawyers until we found the right one for us. And so it's been about four years since we've had a really solid asset plan in place where we've created a living trust and a spillover trust and all of that good stuff, which then completely changed our business model. We no longer had to concentrate on accumulating cash for large down payments, but allowed us then to be more strategic with what our, our goals are moving forward. Carrie, thanks for giving us kind of your personal story. Eric, I know you've worked with several different uh, operations and farmers on this type of planning. So maybe you can give us your perspective on your experience with succession planning. Sure. So, yeah, I've been working for far- with farmers for over 30 years. And the one thing I can tell you is every transition is unique. And quite honestly, that is what I find so interesting, working with farmers and to be part of their transition team. And as mentioned in the previous podcast, it takes a team usually to pull off a successful transition. I've worked with parents, you know, selling to the next generation, uh, forming entities with the next generation where the parents stay involved with the children, and then with partners, shareholders leaving the business, uh, three, four brothers, and one of them wants to retire and how all that works. So I've also worked with families that aren't related, and quite honestly, sometimes that is almost easier because it leaves the family uh, dynamics out of it, and it's strictly all business at that point. I'm also involved in our family dairy operation with my brothers, and we are currently actually working on bringing in my four nephews. So it's an added interest for me that I'm actually trying to practice what I preach here and help other people do doing this on our own operation. 
Well, I thank you both for your perspective on this. And if you go back as a listener to our first episode, which covered getting organized in our success to succession planning series, uh, we're going to kind of feel that uh, you can now assume that audience has its team put together in a vision for the farm. So, Eric, what is the first step in analyzing the business financials of the succession plan? Basically, in the transition plan, we need to figure out the needs of the retiring party. This, along with the existing debt, has to be figured into their cash flow. And sometimes the retiring party's payments are close to their current family draw, but they do not have to be. And and is are we going to be needing to be replacing some labor that will be adding some cost? Uh, the debt servicing becomes a large part of the total plan as we need to structure it so that the business can continue to meet all of its cash flow needs. The last thing we want to do is get the new operation going or transition going, and right away the next generation's running into cash flow problems, and guess who they're going to turn to? Uh, Mom and Dad, you got to take a lower payment, but that's what we need for retirement. So we want to make sure that we're confident that the plan that we set up has the ability to meet the cash flow requirements. Granted, there's things outside our control, but you know you got to use like some historical numbers and, and go from there. The area that is quite often overlooked is that uh, in a complete transfer of ownership, the next generation may find it difficult obtaining credit with their lower owner equity, even though they feel it's the same operation that they've been working on for years. And so this is important to have your creditor involved in these discussions. And another area that can catch families off guard is letting the next generation assume their debt. And I've had several times where the parents might deed the farm over and let them assume the debt, not realizing the tax problems this can create because the next generation is taking over that debt. It's the same as getting mom and dad getting cash to pay off that debt. And a lot of times on this real estate, it's very low tax basis. So, you know, and they've taken over that debt. Mom and dad thinks, hey, I still gave them a nice gift. They just had to take the debt, which is half of the value of the farm. However, the basis might be half of that in tax liability they never even saw coming. And Carrie, from your own personal experience, what was the first step in analyzing the business financials of your succession plan? Yeah, I think having a comprehensive list of assets and liabilities and due dates is a really good first step. And then also, as you're going about creating the succession plan, and if that means having trusts in place, knowing that this is going to be an investment, but spending money upfront to get things titled correctly could save you considerable money in the future. And so being prepared for that level of financial contribution that might be necessary right now, but could save you a lot of money in the long run. That is the voice of Carrie Gribble of Trifecta Farm. She, along with Eric Gullicks-Rood, is the president of tax and accounting at Compere Financial, our guest today, as we continue in our series of success in succession planning. And we're talking about financial analysis. And Eric, let's get back to you to talk a little bit about uh, how do you organize your cash flow analysis? I'd like to at least see three years of uh, past cash flows or, you know, income and expenses, you know, because of the fact that the farmer's cash basis have the ability to do a lot of prepaying. So if you were to just look at one particular year, it might look really good or right, put me more poor just because of the fact of some prepays at the end of the year to help you on tax wise. So you need to make some accrual adjustments in your books, which gets a little bit complicated for some of our clients to understand. But once you walk through it, you know, to give it a better understanding to really 
see what the true income and expenses were for those three years and to build your future cash flows then what does it look like when we now the next generation having to take on the debt of buying mom and dad and uh, typically there's usually some tax consequences and that has to be figured into that cash flow as well and that's where our side the tax consulting side comes in to try to minimize that the best we can because any dollars leaving the operation is just less for that operation to work with. Gary, is there anything you want to add on how you personally organize your cash flow analysis? Yeah, I think we utilize QuickBooks, which gives a lot of good projection opportunities where you can create budgets and look at actual expenditures over a series of years. So we use that. I think also from our perspective, we've got a pretty diversified business, which means while we have the consistency of milk checks that are coming in, we also have the ability to tailor some of our other cash crops and our forage sales during those peak times of cash needs. So that gives us a little bit more flexibility. And Eric, what type of debt analysis should be considered? Well, I think you got to make sure you consider everything. Um, you know, that includes the, not only the debt requirements, but also the family living requirements. Anything that's going to take cash flow has to be figured in there. And, you know, the capital replacement, for an example, sometimes that's an easy one to forget. But, um, you know, things wear out and you need to have something figured in there for capital replacement. And um, try to have as extensive of a plan as you possibly can. And, and it all starts with good, sound records. And uh, whether you're in QuickBooks or Accounting CS, or center point, you you need a good sound set of records to get started with in order to have that much more confidence in the plan that you've put together. Gary, is that pretty much what you did? The records were a key for you as well? Absolutely. I think, yeah, having a clear understanding of debts that you have, whether those are long versus short term and fixed versus variable and, and knowing kind of what your your strategy is. And so for us, sometimes it's about looking where we're taking, we're locking in interest rate loans with a long-term fixed rate so that we have a standard monthly amount and can control that. And then we have the ability to be more aggressive in paying that off if we wanted to. I think our business model allows us as mom and dad are looking to decrease their assets. So as some of their equipment is nearing the end of its useful life, we're then able to buy the new equipment. So that provides us with the opportunity to kind of grow our side and decrease their side. Now, Eric, I would expect there's some kind of loan programs that are available here. Can you kind of highlight some of those and what you might recommend? I don't do anything on the loan side compared to our loan officers here at Compeer Financial, but I do know on some of the cases I've worked with, if it's a complete takeover, I've had some of my new clients that have been able to get uh, FSA financing, direct loans, and um, quite often the other option is to uh, they'll guarantee the commercial lender a Compeer loan and be able to make that work for them. Quite a few of the, the people that I've seen, because interest rates have been lower, is I've seen a lot more parents doing the land contract route rather than just actually having the next generation go to another lender. So a lot of times you know, we're working out these land contracts with the you know next generation. And so mom and dad become the lender, so to speak. So Carrie, from your perspective, did you get involved with any loan programs? We did. We utilized some long-term programs as well as an operating line of credit that kind of provides us with a little bit of a safety net or a cushion to get us through sometimes when we have some pretty high cash needs um, as some of our income fluctuates throughout the year. 
We are spending time with Carrie Gribble of Trifecta Farms. Along with her is Eric Gullicksrud. He is the Vice President of Tax and Accounting at Compeer Financial. We're in our second part of our three-part series on success in succession planning. And we're looking at the financial analysis. And I want to get uh, back to you, Eric, as you can go maybe a little bit more in depth here of what is the difference and benefits between wills and estate plans and then in the second part of this question what recommendations do you have to guide farms and farmers in what directions is really best for them the the wills and estate plans are kind of interchangeable but the will actually is the legal document that spells out the wishes of what should happen to their estate Uh, the better the estate plan is written the less chance of having hard feelings among the heirs uh, the best result I have seen is where the parents openly discuss their wishes, you know, with the family, so that they are well aware of the parents' wishes. And that means, you know, sitting down and having a good discussion. And it's kind of, you know, a story I had. I had mom and dad, and they they had two kids, and they assumed what each one would want. They had several properties, and uh, the attorney, you know, suggested that maybe you should just sit down with them and just see what they think. And it was opposite of what mom and dad actually thought. So they were going to leave like a house in town. Uh, son and uh, hunting land because they knew the daughter's kids liked to hunt and it was just the opposite. So you don't always assume and the best thing they did was to actually sit down and met with the family. I would recommend working with a good estate attorney to help them draft this plan. It's got to be somebody that understands, you know, like some nursing home implications and just having a good understanding of the overall estate planning process. And um, not all attorneys have that. So with attorneys today, there are a lot of specialization that goes on and uh, you want to find one that does specialize in the estate planning field. So, Kerry, from your perspective of what you and your brother did, I know in the beginning of our dairy stream today, you talked about how you got together with your parents, you had dialogue and discussions. But, I mean, if you're making recommendations to other producers, you know, how do you feel they should go on the subject of wills and estate and what direction they should head? Yeah, I think this is a journey. And I think having open and honest conversations like Eric mentioned earlier about what the expectations are. And when we got to a point where we were able to identify those experts that could help us and be creative and think through what some of the best practices are, that really helped us get to a point where we could have some more meaningful conversations. So I always laugh for as long as I can remember, we had this file in the file cabinet. It was the red death file. And like mom laughed and she said, no, this is where all of the contact information is for our lawyer. And it has Mm -hmm. social security box information and it has the safe combination and all of this stuff so that if something does happen, you have it readily available. And so as we went through this process, really working with them to find out like, what are their aspirations for this farm? Do they want us to keep it intact? Are they okay with us selling it if we get to a point where this isn't what we're excited about? And I think for us, we were really fortunate to have very progressive thinking parents who said, you know, we've had the value of the use of these assets and they've been really good to us. And you really need to decide what the next version of this looks like. And if you decide you want to sell it all and invest in something else that brings you joy, then feel free to do that. And that's, we are so thankful for that gift that they've given us so that we don't feel like we're shackled, like, nope, you're expecting us to keep the farm exactly how you had it. So that provides us with a little bit more latitude to be creative and do what really works for us. 
Well, then that's a good insight again. And as you said, that that face to face conversation dialogues, everybody being very candid, very transparent on what they want, what their goals are really can make a difference. But one follow up on this, Eric, I want to get back to then. So if I'm someone out there and I'm thinking of secession plan or maybe I'm in the midst of it now, just on the subject of wills and estate plans, do you feel I need both of those or what would your recommendation be? The important thing is they have to mirror each other so they're consistent. And one of the things when we set up entities, whether it's a corporation or a partnership, you know, whatever the, you know, buy-sell is in there, we want to make sure that's addressed in the will as well and it's consistent because that could just cause problems if does something does happen. So, you know, we want to make sure the estate plan, you know, has some assurances there to allow the farming heir to continue, you know, with some of the financing assurances that uh, the non-farming heirs can't demand all their inheritance or the farming heir, you know, could be forced to liquidate. So the ferrets are part of the farming entity. They want that language, you know, in that entity buy-sell to be part of their estate plan or will. That is the voice of Eric Gullicksrud. He's the vice president of tax and accounting at Compere Financial. Also with us is Kerry Gribble of Trifecta Farms. And before we take our break, I'd like both of you to kind of focus in on this one and maybe start with you, Eric, since you've covered more of a smorgasbord of uh, farm operations and different scenarios uh, on this when it comes to succession plans. But what should a farmer consider if there are multiple heirs of the farm, especially if we're not just talking about those that you know, are, are operating the farms, but those are non-farmers as well? Well, the old uh, phrase that people have heard over and over is fair is not always equal when it comes to treating the children uh, the same when they aren't all involved in the farming operation. Uh, quite honestly, with today's high values, it's probably unrealistic to think the farming heirs can pay the full value for all the assets and be able to make the payments. And so we have seen a variety of options, the use of some life insurance, some, you know, some non-farm property. Maybe they've got a place up north that the other non-farming heirs could have. And then, you know, some possible land, you know, that they could possibly have with some restriction on it, that it must be leased to the farming operation, you know, and maybe it's a 10-year term with, and they get the first right to purchase in the event that the non-farming heirs want to sell it. So, you know, I've seen quite a mixed bag all over the place, but typically, you know, in order for that farming heir to make it, there is usually has to be some considerations made for them in order to make the cash flow work. And what about for you, Carrie? And tell me if I'm wrong, but it looks like on your farm, you know, you and your brother do intend to continue with the farm. What kind of things then does that put you into perspective when you're considering the future? Yeah, and we actually brought my sister in in 2008. So my brother and sister and I are all in the trifecta farms together and have been oh, okay. for a long time. Um, so my dad always laughs that, you know, he and mom have it really easy because all three of us want to be actively involved and we're doing what we are very best at. But the next generation, so between the three of us, we have five kids ranging between 15 and eight. And the likelihood of all five of them wanting to come back to the farm is very unlikely. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, ultimately, we want to be able to support our family members and whatever they're passionate about, both from a personal as well as a monetary standpoint, and it's providing opportunities for them to pursue their passion. And so I think we'll have to deal with that. We're kind of trying to buy some time right now to, to get a better sense for where, where the next generation is looking. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. 
Yeah, I understand completely. Certainly want to thank both Kerry and Eric for their candor and insights. Our conversation will continue here on Dairy Stream after we take a break. When we return, we'll talk about taxes, gift planning, Social Security, and even retirement. All that coming up as we continue with our success in succession planning here on Dairy Stream. And we'll be right back with our Dairy Stream podcast after we hear from our sponsor. Compere Financial is the leading financial service provider for agriculture and rural communities. We serve the needs of farmers and neighbors with local offices in Illinois, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. To learn more, visit Compere.com or contact us at 844-426-6733. Trademarks of Compere Financial, an equal credit opportunity lender. Well, you're listening to Dairy Stream. It's brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. We're in part two of our three-part series on success in succession planning. Our guests today are Kerry Gribble of Trifecta Farms and Eric Gullicksrud, the Vice President of Tax and Accounting at Compeer Financial. And during the second part of our podcast, we want to talk about a variety of subjects, including that big five-letter word, taxes, also a gift planning, retirement, and Social Security. And uh, Carrie, I want to start with you on this one. How can a farm really minimize tax burdens and implications? What have you done? I think the biggest piece for this is really being proactive and knowing that you don't have to be an expert in all of these things. There are people who do this for a living, people like Eric, who have the opportunity to share their insight and help. Um, So it's about building your team, whether that's a banker, an accountant, your legal team, and setting up entities or trusts or other things that allow for a smooth transition, I think is really a key point. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than than having all of this hard-earned money really not benefit the next generation because we're paying it out in taxes. So I think as proactive as you can be and working with teams of experts is what I would recommend. And Gary did say that word team. If you did not hear part one of our success in succession planning, we really talked about how to get organized and teams is a a key factor. So if you haven't heard of that first part of our three-part series, I'd recommend you go back to it. But right now I want to go back to Eric and ask the same question because Eric, you've worked with a variety of different farmers and you are a a tax man. Uh, How can a farm minimize tax burdens and implications? Well, Kerry made a good point, you know, like finding a good attorney, the tax person. Of course, I'm a little biased on the tax side. Working, you know, with a uh, good tax professional is very important. The tax code has gotten so complicated today that if you just look at total costs for having your return done versus all the different things that can be, you know, taken for credits and deductions, you usually get what you pay for. Uh, There are quite a few tax traps that need to be flushed out so you don't not, you know, you don't put a burden on the cash flow since these tax liabilities usually have to come out of the farm. Uh, the depreciation recapture is the large one on the sale of machinery, uh, single purpose buildings, and the purchase cows. So in many cases, you know, we, we do have parents that are looking at doing some gifting. And if that's going to be considered, uh, we f- usually work a plan to gift the hot assets. And those hot assets, again, is the depreciation items, uh, the machinery, purchase cows, single purpose buildings. And then actually what we're going to be selling then is the capital gain assets. And that be like your bear land and raised dairy cows, for example, or beef cows. Uh, these assets can be sold on a contract, and you're only going to pay taxes on the principal payments as 
they are received. So basically, you're able to spread those payments out, and capital gains rates are the cheapest uh, around compared to your normal rates. So again, there's some real opportunities you know, to set these uh, sales up properly to make sure we're minimizing the tax dollars. As I've said before, any tax dollars that leave the farm is just that much less money for our farm to operate with. Excellent point. And again, if you're feeling intimidated talking about a tax expert, well, I think you're learning through this conversation that it's not taxing at all to talk to Eric. So I highly recommend that. Eric, staying with you, how does gift tax exemptions play a role in all this? So we have some, you know, maybe we'll start out with a, a partnership or, you know, we're letting the next generation in slowly. So one of the options we have here is that uh, some clients will be doing like an annual gifting. And for the last several years, their limit has been 15000 So mom can give 15000 and dad can give 15000 or $30,000 a year. Without oh, so you can't do that separate, tax. huh? I didn't mean to yes. interrupt you, but I know some people have the misconception it's just 15000 from the parents, but it's each individual person. Yep, correct. And, okay. uh, you know, if they want to in involve the in-law, uh, that can include them as well. So what we're finding is that typically, you know, if we have inflation, you know, like we have in farming, we're making money, you know, I compare it to to some of my clients, as I said, the child is trying to chase a racing train. Your your equity is going up by 200000 a year, and you're trying to give away 30000 a year. They're never going to catch the front of that train at the rate we're going. So, mm -hmm. and, and I just want to quote, for this coming year now, we, it did go to 16000 But a lot of confusion is out there in the country that I can't gift more than that without having to pay gift taxes. Well, you can actually gift up to the $12 million exemption amount. That's the federal exemption. You do need to change, you know, check your state. Wisconsin, you're fine, but some other states have a lower exemption amount than that that you could possibly pay. So, for example, if I were to give you know, my child $100,000 myself, but I'd have to go against my exemption amount is uh, 84000 I always get that 16000 a year free. So what I just used is 84000 of my $12 million, And that's when you do the gift tax return so that IRS can keep score for you that, hey, you used up some of your you know, lifetime exemption amount. So that was all the chatter this last summer. And I will say with all that chatter, one of the good things that came out of that is we've been kind of like a standstill with a lot of transition plans over the last three years, partly due to the cash flow problems with low commodity prices. Mm -hmm. Well, with this talk and better commodity prices, we saw a lot more interest. So if anything good came out of it, it spurred uh, discussions here again of let's get some of this transition planning back on track again and let's get it done. Now, Kerry, has your family farm had any uh, you know, experience or impact from gift tax exemptions? We have not had a lot of experience with this because, as I mentioned earlier, we kind of bought in and now we're working on a parallel track. Mm -hmm. um, but this is something that we've recently had discussions about, especially with 2C corporations. That adds a little bit different level of complexity. And so we're going to be meeting with our lawyer shortly to discuss options about either gifting shares to the next generation, or is it better to do some of the equipment or some of those single purpose assets that Eric was discussing earlier? 
That is the voice of Carrie Gribble. She's one of our two guests today from Trifecta Farms. Also, Eric Gullicksrud is with us, Vice President of Tax and Accounting at Carmpier Financial. You're listening to the Dairy Stream Podcast, part two of our three-part series on success in succession planning series. And let's get in, Eric, to the subject of what a farmer needs to know about Social Security, especially in terms of succession planning. Even before we get to that point, I would always recommend that you every occasionally, maybe every couple years, go on the Social Security website and request a statement so that you can make sure you're getting the proper earnings given to you. It also helps in knowing what other source of income you will have to supplement your farm retirement sale because that should be, you know, it's another source of income in that retirement. And if the farmer wants to start drawing Social Security before full retirement age, they do need to be aware of the earnings that they can have without having to pay some of this money back again. So for 2022, this limit is $19,560 of earned income, which is your Schedule F profit or W-2 that you would need to stay under that. So when we take a look at this, you know, some people at age 62, like, boy, this could be some extra income that could help the farm. Well, let's take a look. Where's the farm been? Can we keep the Schedule F under that threshold so that we're not paying back $1 for every two that you go over that uh, $19,000 mark? Because then you're kind of defeating the purpose. So it is good to know what it is. And it's not always bad to pay some taxes because that's one of the things we get when people get, you know, late 50s, early 60s, they get their statement like, that's all I'm going to get. Well, you forgot that you haven't paid much Social Security over the last 30 years, and now it's caught up to you. Excellent insights there and a good point to remember. Carrie, have you discussed this with your parents as well about Social Security? Absolutely. I think for mom and dad, obviously they were both working side by side, but for a long time, dad was drawing a much bigger salary than mom was. And so the amount that she has set aside in Social Security is much smaller than what he is. And so, you know, as we look at making sure that they have enough to cover their living expenses moving forward, we obviously want to look at what other income sources they have. And can you think about rental income kind of almost like an annuity to kind of backfill some of that money and thinking about the implications of, okay, do I want to start drawing at 62? No, because I'm not really ready to retire yet. If I don't need that money, I'm willing to hold out for another five years and get substantially more at that point. That's an excellent insight. And Eric, as somebody on that has been retired for a few years now, you know, there are some items you certainly have to be considering no matter what business you're in, but especially if you're talking about the farm and agriculture. I mean, your health care, your standard cost of living, uh, just you know, long-term care if you're looking at that or investments. You know, from your perspective, which one of these or all of these really need to be considered by that senior that's leaving the farm? Well, I think they all should be considered. Unfortunately, they all carry a cost and need right. to be considered in the cash cash flow needs, you know, for the parent leaving the out the business. Um, so we want you know to a plan to allow for a comfortable living after retirement for all the years of hard work and uh, long term care. You know, if it wasn't purchased at a younger age. It can be quite expensive, and the benefits are much less than the policies that were, say, written 10 years ago. And as we all know, health care continues to increase, and even with Medicare, the supplemental policies are getting more expensive. We usually do talk about the cost of living going up and trying to plan for that. 
when you take a look at the family living needs today and setting up the land contract with all these, you know, with those payments, will they be sufficient 10 to 20 years down the road to cover all the costs of the retiring uh, parents? So it might look like we need $4,000 a month to live on today. What kind of inflation factor do we put in there and what do we need to have, you know, 10, 15 years from now? Because, you know, we don't want mom and dad to run out of money. Yeah, that inflation factor, very, very important. I can echo that as well from just uh, experience. You have to look ahead and realize where the economy is going and what direction this will impact your own pocketbook. Again, we have two excellent guests today. Uh, that's Eric Gullicksrud, you just heard from. He's the vice president of tax and accounting at Compere Financial. Also, uh, Carrie Gribble with us of Trifecta Farms. And Carrie, I want to turn to you now when we talk about the need for clarity and transparency. Obviously, Obviously, going through this process, you know how critical that is when you talk about a secession plan. So maybe just from your personal experience, what tips do you have to ensure that this really does happen, that you have clarity, you have transparency throughout the process? Yeah, I think having these conversations is never easy, but I think if you kind of normalize it and make it a part of regular conversations, that definitely helps. I think having clear expectations so that we know ultimately, like, what are your goals, both personally and professionally, and what are the next generation's goals, and look at those on an individual basis so that we can determine how we can best help them achieve those goals. And ultimately, I think it's about really realizing that, you know, for mom and dad, ultimately, these are their assets. And like, we don't have an expectation that we have any rights to them, right? If they decide to sell everything and donate it to a charity, that's their right. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us then to really have a concrete plan in place that they feel good, yep, they've instilled good values in us. They've got a good plan. They're setting us up so that we can be successful. Um, that's really important. I think also from our perspective, I work full-time off the farm at Edgewood College and my being off farm is a distinct advantage because I can be the family mediator, right? So when mm. we have to have some of these challenging conversations, I can have a challenging conversation and I don't have to work with them for the rest of the day, right? I'm only on farm <laughs> once or twice a month. And yeah. so having those, those difficult conversations or I can ask clarifying questions that also sometimes help put perspective into place for those as well. Before I turn to Eric, I do want to just get back to you for a second, carry on this since you've kind of experienced this. It sounds like you got great relations between, you know, the siblings and the parents here. But even for your family, I mean, some people wonder, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I, I can be transparent. I can make it as clear as possible. But initially or even during the process, is that sometimes a challenge? It is. And I think when we finally determined the lawyer that we were going to work with to do our, our asset transition plan, I guess is how we would phrase that. There was a questionnaire that we had to go through and mom had to fill one out and dad had to fill one out. And I filled one out on behalf of Nick and Kate and I. And it was, how do you feel about this? And on a scale of one to 10, this is where you this is where your opinion is on this particular. And so for, there were some where mom and dad were on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And so that required them to then have a conversation about, I didn't know this is how you felt about this. I didn't know this is how you felt. So let's think about where we want to go moving forward. And so I think it's about really also normalizing these conversations and having 
checkpoints in place, right? Obviously, circumstances change, health situations change, you're, cre- you're continuing to get additional assets. And so creating checkpoints in time to ensure that there haven't been serious deviations from some of those original conversations is really important too. And Eric, do you have any, any general tips that you'd want to add to what Carrie said that you think will help keep clarity and transparency going through the process? Yeah, she makes some very good points there. And in the previous you know, podcast, we talked about having a moderator, taking notes, asking those difficult questions. And everybody's got to be just open and honest with each other. And sometimes that's hard to do. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we have dinner, you know, there's lunch, at, you know, they're different on a rain day. So we're discussing, but are they really discussing the business or just kind of what is actually going on? So they need to, you know, have a plan going and look at it over and um, continue to have the family meetings just to keep everybody on track. That's just, it's very important just to have that communication and everybody's got to be open and honest with each other. Thank you both for keeping us on track when it comes to success in succession planning. And we hope you've enjoyed this second segment of our series. In closing, I just want to get a response from both you, Carrie, and Eric. On what final piece of advice do you have for any of our listeners that are thinking about their own success in succession planning? So I think for us, it's always really important to remind ourselves that we're family first and whatever happens, we care about each other more than we care about the the physical things. And so we also got to a point where it's like, you don't ever want to have to do something that no longer interests you or is the direction you want to go. And so having that kind of mentality can really set you up to be more creative, to think about what you love during doing versus what you have to do. And then using your mission and vision and goals to ultimately drive that business forward. And Eric, I'll give you the final word. It's kind of interesting in working on some of our entities, when we're setting them up, we're already talking about somebody leaving, usually, because that language has to be in there. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, you're setting it up, you haven't even got it going, and you're already talking about what's the transition when somebody wants to get out. My big advice would be it's never too early to start. Uh, The sooner you can start, the more options you will provide yourself, you know, when the time comes to start the transition. I've seen transition of management responsibilities well before the ownership, which I think is also important and gives the parents a much better peace of mind and trust as they turn the ownership over. Uh, the next generation's success will be important in ensuring the future retirement funding. So the parents definitely want to make sure that they are successful. And the next generation's not always going to do it exactly the way mom and dad did it. But as long as they're successful and can make it work, that guarantees their payments. My last recommendation is to listen in and attend as many transition events as you can. Sometimes you can get information overload. But usually, you know, you you attend enough of these, you're going to pick up little bits and pieces from different ones that, hey, this might work for us, and it might not work for us. But those are the types of things, like I said early on, that there is no boilerplate transition plan. Everybody's unique, and you got to tailor it to what works for you. So I just want to thank everyone for listening in today. 
Well, I thank you and Carrie for the great job you did in our second part of our three-part series on success in succession planning. Certainly, we had two outstanding resources for you today, and we, again, appreciate their insights, their experience, and just their willingness to have a dialogue on this topic today as we kind of looked at the financial analysis. Again, it was very appropriate that we had Eric Gullicksrud with us. He is a vice president of tax and accounting at Compere Financial, and also a lot of gratitude and thanks to Carrie Griffin of Trifecta Farms. And don't forget, our next time around, we'll have our third part in this series dealing with legal and mediation. And some of the topics we're going to face on Dairy Stream will be updating LLCs, trusts versus wills, and even uh, marital agreements. So we hope you'll tune in for that. Again, we had outstanding guests. And if you did not hear the first part of our series, I certainly would encourage you to go back and just learn how to get organized when it comes to success in succession planning. And big thank you to the woman that always keeps me well organized and informed. That's our editor and producer, Joanna Guzzo, who really is the heart and soul behind a dairy stream. And we want to thank you for your interest and time in listening to today's edition of our podcast. So till we meet again, when again, we'll share our final installment on success in succession planning. I'm Mike Austin, wishing you a great tomorrow. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, just email us, podcast at dairyforward.com.